You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All righty, here we go. We're going to read the scripture real quick for the day. And we're going to pray, and then Joe's going to come up and give us a cool lesson. Sound good? All right, we're going to read out of uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Uh, Jesus is talking here. So um, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood up at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the freedom and the independence that you've given us. Um, Thank you for... Um, giving us your word. Thank you for uh, just being kind to us and loving us. Lord, I ask that you would open up every heart and every mind here today, and I ask that you'd speak through Joe and uh, just give us an awesome word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's Joe. You want your Bible? You might need that during the lesson. There you go. I want to start off with telling you a story. Here's a picture of me. I think I've showed this picture a few times. Uh, that's me. I always say that's me on the left, not the right. And, and, and you laugh because I'm a little boy, not a little girl. Anyways, I grew up Catholic, and I have a lot of uh, fond memories of my Catholic upbringing. I'm not a Catholic hater or a Catholic basher. Um, I have, uh, but I, I, as a kid, um, I had an interesting view of how salvation worked. I thought uh, because you go to church and because uh, I was good at church some of the time, most of the time maybe, at least at church, um, that's all you needed for salvation. And uh, I went to church a lot. In fact, I was given this Bible. So I, had, uh, I would go every year, uh, every day, every, sorry, let me start. I would go every Sunday to Sunday school and they would do attendance. And I had perfect attendance for a whole year. And they gave me a, um, like a little St. Joseph's little pendant thing because my name is Joe. The Catholic Church, like, they, they, they like it if, you're, if your name is one of the saint names. So St. Joseph, the father of Jesus. Or in the Old Testament, there's also another Jesus. So they would give me... Um, uh, little things, and so I had one year of perfect attendance, which turned into two years of per- perfect perfect attendance, which turned into three, then four, then five, and then six years of perfect attendance at Sunday school as a little kid. I was given this St. Joseph's Bible. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Uh, I never read it as a kid because I always thought it was like, oh, it's too special. Don't want to touch it, um, which is kind of funny, but St. Joseph's Bible. And then I, ha- I still have the little flyer of that morning way back in the day, the little bulletin, and my name is in here somewhere. Look at this. Uh, six year, And Joe Kirkendall for six years of perfect attendance at Sunday school. And I remember asking my Sunday school teacher uh, at some point, like, okay, how do we know we're saved? How do we know we're going to heaven? As a little kid, that was my understanding of, like, when you die, you either go to heaven or hell. And as a little kid, I wanted to make sure I was going to heaven. So I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, and she even said, which this is, by the way, not the official Catholic 
church ruling on how people are saved. But my Sunday school, just nice lady, uh, well-meaning little kid Sunday school teacher said, oh, Joe, you have nothing to worry about. You come to church. You have perfect attendance. Of course you're, of course you're going to heaven. You know, duh. And I, I kind of took that as a kid, like, oh, I'm going to heaven. I'm saved because I went to church. And, and this lady, my Sunday school teacher, thought that I was a good little boy. But it really wasn't that good of a little boy. Um, that Sunday school teacher's name was Gertrude. Um, and she went, <laughs> she went by the, it gets better. Uh, her, her first, she went by the, the name Gert. And her last name was Smells. <laughs> So me and my, me and my mean, me as a mean little boy and me, uh, my brother as a little mean little boy, we'd have this little chant. I'd say, who smells? And then he would say, Gert smells. <laughs> who smells? Gert smells. And we never did this around church or around this poor nice lady that was our Sunday school teacher, but we just weren't that. We were nice kids, but we weren't perfect little angels. And I, as a little kid, just thought, oh, because I go to church, um, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm saved just because I show up on Sundays. And most of the time I showed up just because my parents dr- drug me to church, sometimes literally um, to church. But that was my understanding of salvation, that I, was, uh, I went to church and I had this record of perfect attendance so that in, in my own little kid way, I just thought, oh, that's, that's how salvation works. And I never really grew out of that. I mean, I, I went up into all through middle school and then uh, into my high school years just thinking, oh, because I go to church uh, and I had some perfect attendance, uh, I guess that's good enough, and I'm saved. Me and God are cool. And if you asked me, it's like, Joe, you know, how, how are you doing in your life, you know, spiritually? I would say, well, in case you didn't know, I have a perfect attendance. Uh, I got the St. Joseph's Bible to show. And I just had this pride about my own, uh, I guess, my, the works that I did for salvation. And it wasn't until high school um, that I went to just a church group, a, a non-denominational uh, Bible um, Protestant youth group that, that and then I, I fell in love with this Protestant youth group, started going, and the, the teacher just gave this simple gospel message, which I'll kind of talk about today, which is, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. And it was just like, like what? Like all my years of perfect attendance didn't, didn't matter towards my salvation? It's by the grace of God? What is this? And he said something like, that I always knew that we as humans can never be good enough to impress God with our good works. And I knew that, like deep down as a kid. I knew that, oh, I had the perfect attendance, and I had the St. Joseph Bible to prove it. But in my head, I knew that I'm not this perfect little boy that some people, like Gertrude Smells, thought I was. I I did some bad things as a kid, and I knew that that wasn't wasn't right, and it was just never explained to me until a little later in high school. And so that's kind of the big gist of today. We're going to talk about legalism and how that works. So um, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. If you're newish, we have you stand up and introduce yourself and tell us your, your, your worst sin. Just kidding. We don't do that. Uh, we have a card if, you, if you're new, if this is your first time. Uh, you can fill it out and bring it to the back. And the night, We have a gift for you, actually. We won't try to embarrass you at all. And uh, if you want an email or for me to ca- call you and tell you more about college ministry here, I would love to do that. And as far as community goes, uh, right after Sunday school, we go over to the big church, is, is what I usually call it. Um, and we sit, uh, most of us sit in section 10. It's kind of our zone, our section. And there's lots of like talk 
talk right now about section communities and parties and things. So uh, section 10 is kind of our section. And finally, groups on all, every table should be a small group sheet with a list of groups. Those are uh, groups that I would highly recommend. Every single one of them listed them there. So go to groups. How many of you are involved in a group of some sort? Small group, dinner group, Bible study? There's like maybe one third of you, maybe. So more of you, if that's just a great way to, to live life in community and study the Bible together. And, and some groups are just about having dinner together. And so um, check out a group. It just takes, you know, call them or email them and say, can I come to your group? And they'll say, yes, hopefully they should. If they don't, then tell me. It's like, hey, why'd we list your group if you're not letting people come? Um, anyways, I'm rambling. Today, we're starting a, a topic on legalism. And uh, on the cover of your uh, notes, it's this guy wearing a t-shirt. Did you see this? Did you already laugh? It's, it's meant to be funny, of course. It says, legalism rules, exclamation point. And it's obviously just a funny play on words. I didn't mean to say that legalism is actually a good thing, a legalism rules. I just mean legalism is rules, exclamation point. Anyways, does anybody else think that's kind of funny? It's a little funny. Okay, just, just like not too funny, but a little funny. So I thought that would be cute, and that's all it's meant by that. But I think legalism is something, uh, it's a word we throw around a lot as Christians, and I think it's a word that younger Christians throw around a lot. I think it's a word that um, people in their 20s, college and 20-somethings, that's what Sunday school is for, uh, it's, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot with some of the choices we either decide to make or to not make. People will accuse you or you will accuse other people of being legalistic. You'll look at another denomination that maybe has more rules than our denomination um, and we'll say, oh, well, they're just a bunch of legalists. Or people will look at New Life and say, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're a bunch of holy rollers. They're, they're you know, t- holier than thou. They just have a bunch of rules. New Life is a bunch of legalists. And so maybe you've been accused of being a legalist. Maybe you've accused others of being a legalist. And so I'm throwing around this term, but I want to give you a discussion question and ask you the question, how would you define it? What is legalism. I'm going to throw the question onto you. I'm going to define it. Um, So if you're like, man, I really don't know. Um, I have two definitions, actually, that I'm going to bring to this discussion. But I wanted to give you that as a discussion. So if you're in a small, if you're at a table that's small, jump right in, invite yourself to a bigger table, and start off with maybe some synonyms. If you're like, where do we start? Maybe assign someone to be the scribe and write down some synonyms of legalism, and then maybe you will have enough time to write down an actual uh, sentence or two definition of what legalism is. So, cool? Ready? Cassette? Discuss. All right, I would love to hear from some of you. They don't have to be formalized definitions, but maybe just some ideas you kicked around figuratively at your table on defining legalism. Anybody want to start? Yes, Mr. Bowman. Um, I think more often than not, at least the word legalism is used, like you said, like a swear word, um, almost to like... <laughs> legalism! Yeah, Ouch. like, like okay. to bash other people um, like okay, yeah. in, their, in the, what often can be either extravagance unto the Lord, kind uh-huh. of like the Israel, is, Israelite model. Yeah. Of like, that was what the law was for. It was to set a people apart. Um, so either they're genuinely trying to set themselves apart for the Lord, and people are, you know, kind of getting attacked for it, or they've lost the relationship aspect and yeah. they're doing it anyway, which is probably more of what you're asking of just like yeah. what legalism is, is just doing something 
for the sake of doing that thing yeah. and not unto something else. Yeah, that's a great point. You bring, I, I know you're in DLA, and so I know some people look at DLA. Um, do you guys know Desperation Leadership Academy here at New Life? Uh, they, you guys pray at least 10 hours a week, like as part of the... And so I know people who look at that, Christians, like, oh, DLA, they pray 10 hours a week. Instead of being like, wow, that's cool, or being convicted, like, maybe I should pray some more. They just, like, they blow off the whole thing, like, oh, just a bunch of legalists. That's all they are, legalists. I don't know. That's one response. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. So the way I see legalism is just the kind of definition that comes to mind is um, putting importance on law. Putting mm-hmm. importance on what is right, what is wrong. Yeah. Instead of prioritizing, you know, other things that might come to mind, uh, we put like we consider: Following oh, is this rule. right? Is this wrong? Are we going to make this like that's the basis of our decision versus any other decisions that like a, like a letter of the law versus the heart behind the law? Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's a great response. Anybody else? Yes, Mr. Bailey. And then, and then I'll give you my two definitions after Bailey shares. Um, in Scripture, it says that the highway to hell is really, really wide. Yeah. And it says the path of the straight and narrow is, you know, the path to heaven. And most people justify legalism through that. Mm-hmm. But if you think about what Jesus gave us as the law, which was love your neighbor as yourself and love God first and foremost, that's the narrow path. Yeah, good. Yeah, so d- just... When Jesus said, uh, people come up to Jesus and ask him, what is the law? And he says, well, the whole law, the whole prophet, the law and the prophets can be summarized with love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God. And thank you. Yeah, that's a great response. Here's, so I have two definitions. If you're taking notes, I provided some space um, in the little handout we give you uh, with two types. And I think this will make sense. And I've heard bits and pieces of this as I went out and got some responses. But type one is this. And today we'll spend the majority of today talking about this type one. This type one is what I, as a kid, a little Catholic boy, um, I was kind of ensnared and trapped by this type of legalism. So I'll read it. It's attempting to obtain, attempting to attain or keep salvation by the excessive keeping of rules and holiness codes. And so for me, as a little Catholic little boy, um, and by the way, this is not, that's not the Catholic Church's doctrine on how salvation works. It was just my own little kid way of seeing, uh, trying to figure out how salvation worked. In my own little head, I thought, oh, if I never miss a Sunday school, then like the excessive keeping of rules, if I don't miss a Sunday school, um, then, then I am saved. And that's the definition of what I'm referring to as type one uh, legalism trying to obtain salvation or keeping salvation just by merely uh, keeping these certain rules. And, and maybe as, a, as Christians, I think we all struggle with this at some point. Um, the, like we mess up as Christians and maybe some of us are like just drowning in these thoughts of like, did I lose my salvation? Um, am I good enough for God? Um, I didn't keep this rule and I thought I should keep this rule, but I didn't. And so now you beat yourself up and you feel like, oh, I'm going to lose salvation totally on account of not keeping this particular excessive rule or holiness code. Um, but then there's this other side of like, well, if you are a Christian, you should live a life according to holiness. And so today, after I talk about type two and what it is, we'll go back to type one. And today's lesson will really be about this type one. So type two is this, and this is probably the other one 
that most of you are probably referring to when you, when you hear the term legalism, you talk about legalism. And I wrote it as this. Another type is where a Christian keeps certain rules and regards other Christians who do not keep their level of holiness with contempt. And so it goes back to the passage Steve read at the beginning of Sunday school. A Pharisee and a tax collector go to the Lord to pray. And this tax, or the, the Pharisee who keeps all the rules looks at this, uh, the sinner, this tax collector, and says, Thank God that I'm not like him. This, or I'm not like a robber or a thief or I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I keep all the rules. And, and so he's looking at his own life with, with le- some sort of legalism, saying, oh, I'm better than everybody else because I keep these rules and I hold in contempt other believers who do not keep the rules. And that, that's, there's a lot of pride surrounding that. And I'm sure every one of us, including myself, has struggled with this in keeping a rule and doing something in holiness and then, and then seeing people who are not keeping the same rules and just seeing them as idiots because they're not doing what you're doing. Um, and we'll talk about this type two for the rest of the month, but not today. We're going to talk about type one today. And really, type one of legalism, how I'm defining it, this one has a lot to do with salvation, how salvation works. For those of you that are nerds in here, anybody a nerd? I heard that scream. Yep, I see. <laughs> It is, it's kids Sunday today, so there's kids, or it's like family Sunday, so kids are in here. So if you, and I think they're just my kids, so if they're screaming, just, just, they're cool, they're cool, they're my, they're with me. Um, uh, Soteriology, so for the nerds, that's right, I was asking, who's a nerd? Raise your hand strongly if you're a nerd. Yes, okay, good. For nerds, this word is a big uh, uh, word within Christianity. Uh, Soteriology, the study of salvation. The study of how salvation works. And I think oftentimes as preachers, I would be guilty of this as well. Um, we're guilty of like trying to oversimplify it. Oversimplify how salvation works. Whereas Jesus and the Bible often use parables and metaphors. Um, for instance, Jesus says things like, here's a parable of how salvation, here's the parable of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, seed gets tossed out. And it, some soil it lands on is good soil. Some of the soil it lands on is hard soil. Some of the soil it lands on is already has thorns in it. And the seed grows and the thorns cut it out. Or in the bad soil, birds come and get it. Uh, but on the good soil, it yields a, a, a fruit a hundred times what was sown. And that's Jesus talking about how salvation works. And it's like, well, that's, that's not literal, of course. But you're like, oh, interesting that we... In that, in that analogy, that a parable is like we are the soil and we need to respond to this gospel message. Then there's other metaphors that we as Christians use um, that are oftentimes very good to think about. Like, have you heard the metaphor of like you and your life, you're standing uh, on, on like looking down to the, at the Grand Canyon. There's like a huge Grand Canyon. On the other side is God and you want to get to God, but you can't run with your own effort and jump across this huge chasm. There's no way you can do it, but with the help of Jesus and Jesus alone. And there's, how many of you have seen the picture of the, like the Grand Canyon and like a cross bridge on the Grand Canyon? Have you seen that before? So it's an interesting metaphor, a beautiful metaphor, a helpful metaphor 
But of course, that's not a literal, that's not literally how salvation works. That's a metaphor for how salvation works. And the seeds and the, the sowing of seeds and them landing on our, our hearts that are either good or uh, hard. Like that's another analogy. And I think when we, um, and I'm guilty of this, of course, as a pastor of trying to oversimplify it, like making charts of how salvation works. And um, sometimes I'll talk about a sinner's prayer or an altar call. These are very popular ways in our society today as, as American evangelicals of like, oh, you want to get saved? Well, then uh, be a part of an altar call and go say a sinner's prayer. Um, and that's very helpful for lots of people. That's how I came to the Lord. Um, and I would talk about this experience I had at that winter camp um, that I mentioned earlier when, when the, 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 the pastor talked about how salvation worked. And I was a part of an altar. I raised my hand. I, I prayed a prayer with him. And it was that, I would say, it was at that moment that my life was opened to the Lord on a whole new level. I started walking with him and having a relationship with him instead of trusting in good things like the perfect attendance at Sunday school. But then there's lots of criticisms of altar calls and sinner's prayer. Uh, This has been criticized because, of course, you can do an altar call and a sinner's prayer and not mean it. And then hold this thing like like a figurative card and say, oh, I said the prayer, I went down the altar call, but your life didn't change. And so how really does salvation work? Well, there's some things that we can say with surety, and there's other things that we can't. And the things that we can't, we're going to leave a mystery. Um, And I I hope to not, we're not by any means going to over-explain salvation and take the mystery out of it. Um, But I just wanted to be sensitive to the fact that when Jesus talks about salvation, he he gives parables and metaphors. And um, so uh, I'm going to be sensitive to that. Um, But we need to talk about how grace and works are a part of salvation. That's kind of today's further message. And so I want to give you another discussion question for you at your tables. You could join a different table if you didn't like the people at your table. Um, <laughs> just kidding. That'd be horrible if someone like... <laughs> and don't leave this... Anyways, uh, stay at your table. Or you could, if you're, you could join a bigger table if you want. Um, here's a discussion question. I don't know why I make things awkward sometimes. That's my own fault. Uh, here, here's what I want you to, to discuss this bigger idea. um, I'm going to word it like this. What is the role of works in salvation? And by works, I mean doing good things. Um, Going to Sunday school every week as a little kid. Like that was my good work. Uh, Maybe for you, um, something that you think like, oh, Christians do this. This is a good work to do unto God. And so I want you to talk about what is the role of works in salvation? And I'm going to split the room in half. And so you guys could decide what half you want to go with um, to the left side and the right side. So if you're on the left side, uh, I want you to take this role. And it's easy to take like a middle ground, but for the purpose of this discussion, uh, I want there to be kind of a tension and, and we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll go around with the mics and maybe have each side talk a couple times. Um, so I want there to be some sort of like a, a very friendly debate. And I, as Christians, I don't even like the debate. I like the word discussion. So a very friendly discussion on each side. And so if you're on the left side, um, it's you guys, uh, take the take the... Um, s- stance that uh, I-, I worded it as not very important role. So what is the works in salvation? You guys, I want you to argue, not a very important role in the process of salvation. And if you want, a ver- if you're like, I don't even know where to start, write down this scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that's you, your side. Uh, if you're like, uh, so, so take the role, of, it's, it's not very important. And then you guys on the right side, 
I want you to argue that it's a very important role. Works are a part of um, the salvation process. And if you guys want a verse for uh, ammunition, I guess that um, we really don't want a a debate. Uh, Look at James 2, uh, specifically, like starting in verse 14. James uh, 2, specifically 14 and on. Um, So, do you understand what you're going to do? Talk, so kind of get, get together, put your heads together, take one of the sides. And, and again, it's easy to take middle ground, but for the purpose of this exercise, we're trying to uh, stir uh, a dis- good discussion. So ready, get set, discuss. Where should we start? We'll go like back and forth, and, and uh, well, it's a friendly discussion, not a debate. Uh, I assigned you which role to take, so we, we don't need to like... It doesn't have to, like, WWF in here and, like, oh, I'm going to get you. You take your works. <laughs> Anybody want to start us either side? Right side? side? Nobody wants to start? Oh, thank you. Mr. Burke. Well, um, <laughs> we took the side. So taking the side of um, faith without works is dead. So you're reading James 2, yes. 14. Faith, did you, did you know that that? passage says that faith without works is dead. Yes. Um, belief in God is a relationship, and you can't just sit there idly by and say, I've got faith, and just hunker down and wait for the apocalypse to happen. <laughs> is that what your table does? No. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a relationship. How can you tell someone you love them if you're just sitting there and doing nothing? Yeah, so, it's, so you would say, arguing from the side, it's a part of salvation. Of course, you have to respond to salvation, and that would be good works. Thank you, Mr. Burton. And then I'll, go, I'll give the mic to Aaron Higgins over here. And then I see your hand, Nate, but we'll go over here and then come back maybe. So it is by grace that we are saved. Nothing That's that, the Ephesians 2 Ephesians passage. 2, yeah. yep. So there, there's nothing that we can do as a human being to earn salvation, to earn God's grace. It's unmerited grace. And... Any actions that we do have zero bearing on our salvation. It, it edifies, it's a good thing, but it has nothing to do with salvation. With salvation. Good. All right. That's a very different side than the other side. So responses, don't, don't let your side down. <laughs> Come on, right side? Yes. Okay, I see the hand. Yes, Aaron Spurgeon. So going off of that, I think he's correct in saying that we are not able to save ourselves and our works have no bearing on our salvation, but our works have bearing on someone else's salvation. Oh, oh, dang! <laughs> I'm, I just said, don't do a debate. Now I'm feeding it. Oh, dang! <laughs> Nate, do you still want to share? Let me get you the mic. It was just, we, we talked about the whole thing of the act of initial salvation itself has, again, nothing to do with works. So if we're talking about strictly salvation at that point, there are no works involved in that whatsoever. Yeah. However, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. So there's so works both, involved there. Works are a response to your salvation. Good. Yeah. And final comment. This is my son, Jay. Jay, you want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> Good job, Jay. <laughs> Just smiling. Um... So this is a good debate. Uh, This debate happened a long time ago. It's been happening. 
within Christianity of this role of faith and works. And you see it again and again in the Bible. Uh, For grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2. And then James 2 says, well, faith without works is a dead faith. It's like, well, well, which one is it? And uh, as Christians, we at some point we kind of have to say, well, there is a mystery. There is a discussion that happens, and, and both are important. Realizing that we cannot come to God with our own salvation and, and our own works and say, look, God, I had perfect attendance at Sunday school. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. I totally deserve salvation from you. That, that would be silly to say to God, a holy creator. And then on the other side, it's like, well, faith without works is dead. Um, we, we need if, if our salvation, if we are truly saved, then well, where is the works? And so if we go back into church history, which will be a very nerdy thing for just a second, so I wanted to give you an official nerd alert. Remember? I used to do this all the time. Um, so here's the, here's the nerd alert. Going back to the 400s. And so stay with me. This, this is a debate that happened a very long time ago. And it, happened, it kind of led up to the 400s because it happened even before that. Christians getting together, talking about faith, and then talking about, well, what, what happens when a Christian who professes their faith is an idiot? Like, is that person really just not saved? Or what happens like a really, really good person? We think about this all the time. What about a really, really good person who does lots of good things, um, but, that, but they don't like Jesus, but they're a really good person? Well, th- this, this is an important issue. And so going back to the 400s, back to a guy named Augustine. Have you heard his name before? Raise your hand. He's probably um, the, uh, I don't know, the theologian. Outside of Bible writers, he's probably the most important theologian to have ever lived. And that's an opinion, of course. But if you, if you talk to other church uh, historians, I think it would be hard to argue any other person other than Augustine outside of Bible writers. Anyways, Augustine, who lived in the 400s, he has journal entries. He writes about his life and his struggles with sexuality, his struggles with women, his struggles with uh, drunkenness. And then God gets a hold of his life and he becomes a Christian, is radically changed, and then becomes what today we would look back on as one of the greatest theologians who has ever lived. And because of his testimony and his story, he argued for salvation by grace and grace alone. So, so Augustine would be on this side, all of you uh, that agreed with grace, the side of grace, the side of Augustine. And then there was another guy who lived in the 400s. And this guy uh, would be on this side, but he was much more extreme. His name is Pelagius, sweet name, even sweeter haircut, by the way. Um, I've talked about this haircut before. It's called a tonsure. And you would, in, the, uh, in the old days, you would get this haircut uh, literally because it's such an ugly haircut. Um, you're like, I don't care about what I look like. I only want to serve and please the Lord. So I will get a ridiculous haircut and look like this in order to please the Lord. I think it's pretty cool. If any of you get one of these ever, guys, uh, girls, don't, please don't. Um, but guys, if you ever do this, um, take a picture of yourself and then tag yourself, like hashtag the Sunday school. I would love to see it. I think it'd be pretty cool. Anyways, I'm rambling. Uh, Pelagius is a guy that took this side to an extreme. So much so that he said, you don't need the grace of God. He said this. He said, there's the image of God inside of you. That part's true. But he said, there's so much so that you can do your own good things and good works and work your way to God without the grace of God. Um, He worked with people in Rome. He was from England, but made his way to Rome in the 
in the 400s and worked with kind of these poser Christians, like homeless Christians, um, sinners, very poor Christians that were not living for the Lord. And he said, these guys are idiots. These guys are uh, not real Christians. To be a real Christian, you need to work your salvation out. Um, And so much so that he said, you don't even have to accept Jesus or his ways. You can just do enough good works and be saved on your own account. And he was way too extreme. Of course, uh, Christians got together and had a council. Uh, It's called the Council of Carthage, if you want to be really nerdy and look that up later uh, and look at some more of the details. A council was formed and said, no, no way, Pelagius, you are very wrong. You are way too extreme. And, And Pelagius, even towards the end of his life, recanted some of those uh, more extreme things that he said. But here's how we think about it as Christians. So we, you can't, it's not grace or works. Here's how I've worded it. I've worded it in this sentence, and I think all of Christendom would really agree with, with this kind of saying. Looking at the text of Scripture, bouncing back the ideas of grace and works, we'd say we are saved by the grace of God and good works overflow. Wouldn't you say it like that? Have you heard it like that before? Raise your hand if you've heard it like that before. It's a pretty standard doctrine when it comes to soteriology, how salvation works. And hopefully by by putting it on a sentence like that, I'm not taking the mystery out of salvation. And I do believe there's lots of mystery. But I mean it like this. Like we're saved by grace. So God hunts us down in this metaphor. And he finds us uh, because he's God. And he knows everything. And he finds us. And what are we doing? Well, we're... Um, not paying attention to him. We're, we as human beings are doing what we want. We're using sexuality for our own amusement. We're being greedy. We're being selfish. But God, because of his grace, hunts us down, finds us, gets in front of us, and then we have the choice to receive him. And if we do receive him by grace, by his grace, um, of course we would want to live like he lives. Of course our good works would overflow. And if we find God... And we think we accept him, but, we, but good works don't overflow. Our lives don't look like it. Well, then I think that's the passage in James where it says faith, a kind of faith that has no deeds is a dead kind of faith. He says later on in the passage, you believe that there's one God. Do you know the rest of this? Good. Even the demons believe that and they even shudder. Even the demons are afraid of God. Even demons believe in God. But of course, demons, I don't know what they're doing other than bad things don't have any good works. And so, of course, I guess they have faith that there's a God. They believe in God. They know there's a God, but they have no good, good works or deeds. And of course, that kind of faith is, is like the demons that James is saying. Not my uh, comparison, but James is, and he's a Bible writer, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, so we're saved by grace, saved by the grace of God, and good works overflow. So to conclude... Um, I think when we get these things out of order, if we think we need to um, like clean up before God to be holy so that we can accept him, that's the wrong order. And I'll end with a story of uh, my friend uh, William. Um, and and he, I asked permission to tell the story, and he's uh, a pretty awesome guy. He said, of course, tell it if it glorifies God. So hopefully his story will glorify God. So um, maybe, oh gosh, when did I meet Big Bill? Oh four, oh five, oh six, somewhere in there. Many years ago, I met uh, a guy named Big Bill. Anybody know Big Bill? Oh, look at all the hands. Big Bill, yeah. Um, so Big Bill is, is really big. Uh, he, he was played for the Spartans in Michigan. 
uh, like go, go Spartans in football. Um, I, I, forget, I don't really know football positions, but he's a really big guy. He could like kill anybody in here, probably all of us. Just everybody versus Bill, he'd win. Um, and he would say he lived the college party football life scene in college. Uh, girls drinking, underage drinking, uh, the party scene, the football scene, the pride scene, um, not paying too much attention to the things of God. And then uh, Bill moves here to Colorado Springs. Someone randomly invites him uh, to new life, to the college ministry. And so he comes and then God begins to speak to Big Bill. And, and by the way, he went by the name Big Bill, but because of his life change, he now goes by William. And so, uh, so God begins to speak by William to William. God begins to speak to William. Um, and he knows it. He knows that he needs to get right before the Lord. Uh, and William is very rough around the edges. He's still like kind of into the party scene and like trying to figure out Christianity. I remember the first time a bunch of us hung out and, and William came, uh, <laughs> The neighbors had a slip and slide, and so Bill was like, let's do the slip and slide. And he just takes off his shirt and pants and proceeds to do the slip and slide. It's like, Bill, you can't do that, man. There's like pure girls here, and when you take your shirt off, I I don't look like that. So if you could keep your shirt on, that would help me. It was like before I was married, he's like, throw me a bone, brother. Keep your clothes on. (laughs) Anyways, that's, uh, anyways, a kind of guy that he was just like, like, of course, like if you're just the party, you know, like, of course you just take off your clothes and do the slip and slide if there's a slip and slide available. It's like, no, you'd, if you're a Christian, you, you don't just take off your clothes and do a slip and slide. Uh, you, there's modesty and, and there's a time and a place for that, um, but it's not. <laughs> Anyways, continuing on the story. God begins to speak to William and, um, and him and I would meet together and we, we spent quite a, quite a bit of time together. And in fact, he moved into our house, a, a group of guys, uh, before I was married, uh, all lived in the same house. And we would have these discussions about spirituality and Christianity. And he was always like on the verge, like, I, I, really want, I really believe this and I'm ready to accept it, but just not yet. And he, um, he came to this point where he said, okay, I think I know what you're saying is true and wh- what the church is saying is true and what the Bible's saying is, is true and I want to accept it. Um, and he said, I just need a couple months or some time to clean up my life, to get rid of uh, things in my life that I need to get rid of, to clean up my life, and then I will come to God. And I, I listened to him and I said, that's, that's the exact opposite of the order of what needs to happen. I said, come to Christ first. You're not saved by cleaning up your life on your own. You're saved by the grace of God and then from the inside out, God will clean you up. And to give William, lots of you know him, and so you would probably say he's one of the most humble, godly guys you know. Um, and, and I was able to, to, to say that. I said that to William. I said, you know, come to God, and then, and then he will clean you up from the inside out. He said, I, I need to think about that. And then I think it was just like the next day, he was like, you're right. I'm going to give my life to Christ. I want to get baptized. I want to give my life over to the Lord. And so I got to baptize him on an Easter Sunday night, gave his life to the Lord. And then the Lord just insanely cleaned up his life, so much so that I would look at William's life and, and, and say, he's one of the strongest Christians as far as being like humble and being not 
ever. Like, I can't even imagine William taking off his clothes and doing a slip and slide at a, at a party. I, he's like the farthest thing. If you know William, you're like, yeah, I can never imagine that. Um, it's like God just radically, radically gave him so much humility and God radically changed his life that the old is the old life and the new is the new life. And um, I just think it all started because God, to God be the glory, God changed his life. He didn't clean up his own life. He gave his life over to God and God made him very clean. And he, out of his life comes good works. And so I want to reread to conclude. We'll end a little early today. Uh, I want to conclude just by rereading this passage that Steve read at the beginning of Sunday School to invite us in into his ways and his thoughts. So if you want to return there, it's Luke 18. Here's a painting of it. It's the Pharisee and the sinner. And we, of course, need to be more like, in, at least in this analogy, more like this humbled sinner that, that turns to God rather than this legalistic Pharisee that, that is calling upon his own righteousness. So Luke 18 Starting in verse 9. To some who are confident in their own righteousness. And that's all of us. I, I think as, as Christians, there's, there's no denying that at some points in our life, maybe many points in our life, we get confident in our own righteousness. So this parable is for us. Um, to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, like this person seen as this holy guy in society. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, someone known as a sinner, someone known for uh, taking money and stealing money, going against his own people, taking money. Um, So a Pharisee and a tax collector, a good guy and a bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. How many of us have thought that as we... You know, you see someone else mess up, another Christian mess up, a pastor mess up, and you're like, thank God I'm not like him. Um, But that's not the way to look at it. So the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So he's bringing to the Lord these good things. He fasts twice a week, he gives away a tenth, and so he's like, God, look at me, how cool am I? I'm glad I'm not like these other people. But verse 13, but the tax collector just stood at a distance, thinks he's not even worthy of God, stands at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you the truth, that this man, the sinner, the tax collector, the guy that's beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before the Lord, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we come to you and and really want to be like the the tax collector in this story. People that um, come before you in such humility, knowing that it's only by grace that we can be saved. Lord, I know that there's such a, such a pride in my own life and, and all of our lives about some of the good things we've done and thinking we can come to you with our good things and impress you enough for salvation. But Lord, you like it most when we come before you humbly. We come before you and, and request your mercy upon our lives as people who have sinned and fallen short. Lord, we come before you, a holy God, a creator God, and say, 
God, we want you inside of our life. God, we see you right in front of us, chasing us down and hunting us down. And we say to you, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. We love you and we praise you, Lord, that you have given us life, eternal life through your son, your sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we bless your name, Lord. You're good to us. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.